This is the second time we've done this intro because it didn't record the first time, but you don't care. It's all about you, not us, the listener. Welcome to Music Biz 101 and more, your free advice radio show, blah, blah, blah. Find us every Wednesday at Brave New Radio 88.7 FM with Campus William Pastor University in Cedar Queen, New Jersey, or on iTunes, South Carolina, Stitcher Radio as a podcast. I am your co-host, Professor David Kirk Philp, with your other co-host, Dr. Esteban. Mark Crony. Oh, he's so last I'm time. You're, it's good to have you here, Dr. Esteban Marconi. We are live. We're pre recording what you're listening to from Nashville, Tennessee at the Music Biz 2016 convention. Now we clap and say, Whoa, whoa. That's right. We want to give a lot of thanks uh, to Music Biz for giving us the digs that we are in. They're not charging us. They've been very nice to give us this free space to podcast and record for you from the show. We have great guests such as Deborah Newman, who's a digital consultant and a know-it-all, but in a good way. So yeah. we want to thank Deborah for being here. Thank you. For We're going to get me. quite a bit into Deborah and what she done, does and has done. We also want to give a big thanks to Emily Case, who is here, and Alyssa Warner, who is here, the two students who give Marconi and me jobs. We want to give thanks to Mia, the Music and Entertainment Industry Education Association. They gave us a grant which helped pay for Emily and Alyssa to be here today and book this gig with with, uh, Deborah Newman. So thank you very much to Mia. We want to give thanks again to the Music Business Association for giving us space here in the Nashville Convention Center for our William Patterson University students to connect and interview some great guests. You hear that pounding in the background. Um, after this, we're going to uh, record live from Worldwide Wrestling. Deborah Newman, as you know, is a wrestler, and she's the most famous female wrestler on the planet. That I've is true. I've been wrestling with this industry all my life. That's there right. You go. So she does that, and alligators as well. Oh, we also want to give thanks to Van Dyne Bruno, Inc., and White Hat Management. With artists like Charlie Puth, Dave Matthews, Sharon Jones, The Dap Kings, and Kiss, there's only one place to go for your band's business management, and that is Van Dyne Bruno, Inc., or White Hat Management. Same company, two different names. Go to vb-cpa.com when it's best for you. We also should give thanks, Alyssa, Emily, Deborah, to Christine Vey who is a wealth manager and the president of A Wealth Management. Christine has helped many of our professionals at William Patterson manage their investments and plan out their retirement. If you're looking for some guidance on how to plan for your retirement, or if you have questions on anything from investments to portfolio management to insurance retirement planning, give Christine a call at Deborah. Would you please repeat after me? 732 732 455 455 1510 1510 You have a wonderful voice. I know it's hoarse, but that was incredible. And you should do Are you a singer? No, but I started my career in radio. There, there we go. So, oh, college radio, college right? Radio. College radio. Yeah. Actually, my go. mother was a disc jockey. When I grew up, she was a classical disc jockey, and then she became a talk disc jockey. This was in South Florida, uh-huh. and I used to do commercials with her. She used to do commercials for a department store, Jordan Marsh. And I would go, Mommy, Mommy, let's go shopping at Jordan Marsh. They're having a sale. So I sort of early was around radio stations. Oh, wow, that's that's really great. And you still get the residuals from those commercials to this day. And (laughs) they help pay for your flight down here. Um, (laughs) Email Christine of Christine. 
Christine Vey Wealth Management, Christine at VeyWealth.com for advisement. That is enough of the thanks. We thank you. We love you all. Don't forget to go to MusicBiz101WP.com to sign up for the newsletter. But until then, we should listen to Emily and Alyssa give Deborah Newman the third degree. Or you also want to give a bio, quick bio of, of Deborah and all that she has we done. We can do that. Please do so. And then it's all yours. I'm done. I quit. You quit. I quit. Okay. So you founded Fire. Music Strip. What? <laughs> Marconi is very happy. I mine. guess so. Right. You founded your own company. I did. And how did that work for you? Well, it's you know it's a uh, the next stage, mm-hmm. and you know I don't want to say the last stage, but I I'm, I've been excited to be able to work on my own, which is a new right. thing after working for companies all my life, and um, so I could just be under my own name I didn't really need a company it just gives me a URL for a website without having to be DebraNewman.net which I also own the URL for DebraNewman.net but um, you know I uh, my boyfriend had actually registered the domain Techstrat because he's in the tech world and I said oh that's interesting Techstrat how about if I do Musicstrat so everybody thinks oh is that Stratocaster Um. I said no it's strategy so it's digital I actually am a I call myself a a digital music strategy consultant Mm -hmm. so that's where the strat came from Gotcha. Way before that, you got your bachelor's in music and you studied classical piano. I did. How did that transition go from classic pianist to a company owner? So, first of all, I was a classical pianist since I was five. I was, uh, you know, I played in recitals, I played concerts, I have a music degree, I spent summers at the Aspen Music School and the conservatory. I was a serious classical pianist until I realized. Um, that I was not going to make a living as a pianist. If you had any other interest in life and you, you know, wanted to spend time doing anything else but playing the piano, it's it's pretty hard. You have to really mm-hmm. do nothing else but. And um, I was also always a rock and roller. I bought singles. I went to the record store and listened to the, you know, upcoming releases in the little record booths. I had a big mm-hmm. singles collection. I was a, a rock and roll fanatic. I also played the guitar. I got a, a six-string Stella steel string guitar for my 13th nice. birthday, mm-hmm. and then later got a beautiful Gibson guitar so I played a lot of sort of Joni Mitchell and mm-hmm. Peter Paul and Mary and Tom Rush and a lot of folky songs <laughs> so I always was into music period it didn't really matter um, and I got involved with a radio station at Brandeis University in Waltham Mass where I went to school and um, started off as a disc jockey on the air and then became music director my senior year and um, I loved it I dealt with all the record company people in Boston I would go around with my friend who had a car begging for records for the radio <laughs> station and we amassed quite a large collection which is still there even at Brandeis mm-hmm. um, and I got involved with uh, my first job was as a college rep for United Artists Records which unfortunately doesn't exist anymore but in those days the jazz label Blue Note was part of UA mm-hmm. and so we worked some incredible um, wow. artists worked with incredible artists in college yeah. radio in the Boston area of which there are at least a dozen college radio stations um, and then I got hired by Columbia Records in Boston and that was my first job real job full-time job and I ended up spending 20 years at the company doing a lot of different things moved from Boston to New York to LA and back to New York and uh, started in 73 and left there in the beginning of 94 and I you know it was the greatest time of my life you couldn't work in a better business for a better company at the time there was nothing like you know Columbia Records and the CBS Records family Mm -hmm. many of them are here today still around people that I worked Mm -hmm. with back then um, Marconi was signed to Columbia, right? That's right, in the early 70s on Epic. Really? Mm-hmm. Under uh, A band called Jam Factory. 
I sort of vaguely remember that. Mm -hmm. I started, Everybody I sort of vaguely, vaguely remember that. <laughs> well, I worked the records they told me to work. And right. when you're in the college department, they you work all the things that the promotion guys can't get on Absolutely. Uh, you know, t regular top 40 or, in those days, AOR radio. You're basically working the baby bands, the yeah. developing acts. And some of those acts at the time were bands like Journey and mm -hmm. Billy Joel and Bruce Springsteen mm -hmm. and Loggins and Messina and Aerosmith. And these were bands, they were they were just first releases were coming out when I entered the company. So that was like a great time. I have relationships today with artists that I worked with going back to those days mm -hmm. that remember me from, from those days. So that's a pretty rewarding feeling. Mm -hmm. And that was a pre-Steve Perry journey then too. That was pre-Steve. Yeah, the the journey, early. I just saw the Journey Santana show at Madison Square Garden. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I got to go back inside of Carlos and two of the original members of Journey, of, 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 of Santana, who became Journey, right. are back playing with Carlos. So yes, Neil Schoen yes. on guitar and, and Greg uh, Raleigh on keyboards. Right, yeah, so Greg Raleigh right. was vocals and keyboards. And it was when Journey was a bit more of a sort of spacey kind mm -hmm. of band. They were yeah. more progressive and mm -hmm. uh, a little bit, I want to say jazzy, because they weren't a jazz group, but they were real musicians. Right. We saw, we went to NAMM. Uh, last year, and we saw Greg Roll. Is it Raleigh? Raleigh, Raleigh. R O L I E. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. We saw Greg uh, perform there, and uh, he was doing some Santana stuff, mm -hmm. and it was uh, very cool to see him. Because I was a huge Journey fan, I was buying all those early records. Right. And, yeah, no, and, that's uh, very cool. Steve, Steve Smith, the drummer. Yep. He's got a band he, called Buddy's Buddies. Steve Smith, Smith replaced Ainsley Dunbar, who that's was the right. first drummer. Right. That's right. And then. Um, What's his name? Jackson, who was eventually on Randy Jackson. Randy Jackson yeah. became the drummer of Journey. Right. He became the bass player. Oh, the bass player? Yeah, oh, he I'm replaced sorry. Right. Uh, what's his Ross name? Valerie. Ross Valerie okay. on the Raised on Radio. How do I remember Boy. this? Yeah. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> a lot of names in the last 30 seconds. Yes. None of whom any of our listeners care Not about. Not of them. I actually happened to see uh, in the last month a whole bunch of artists play in New York that I used to work with or knew from my days, and I managed to be able to say hi to a bunch of them. Mm -hmm. I just actually last weekend was at um, the Cloisters, which is the yeah, sort of medieval there, sure. castle in upper the Upper West Side, and it was an all-day guitar festival that was mostly kind of classical and medieval guitars and lutes and ouds mm. and interesting instruments. But playing at 11.30 in the morning was Vernon Reed from Living Color. <laughs> oh, yeah. And another oh, musician wow. who he was playing with was incredible. And I went over side to side to Vernon because we did some music video stuff together. It was mm. like, oh my God, and hugs and kisses. And yeah. I posted the picture on Facebook and I had like 60 people. <laughs> Are you guys going to ask her about being a woman in the music business in the 70s and 80s? Should we? Yes. Ask her about that. I'm not going to. I so don't, so, so I what, was it, what was it like being a woman in the music business in the 70s and 80s? Mm -hmm. Well, it was, I felt like I was forging new ground. But, you know, mm -hmm. as I said in the panel that I moderated here yeah. yesterday, which was a panel of five powerhouse women in the business who have achieved and accomplished a lot and who are all board members mm -hmm. of the Music Business Association, um, some of us had different feelings about it. And, you yeah. know, I going back to the history of it, I felt, I never felt like I was, a woman or a girl in the music business. I just got a job in the music business and it was, mm -hmm. I happened to be a, a woman among a lot of men. And I would say for the most part, um, I didn't ever feel um, discriminated or persecuted or that I didn't get the opportunities that I should have gotten because I was a woman. I, there were certainly some areas of, um, uh, let's just say, you, you have to watch, you know, your relationships with the people that you yeah. work with. 
Um, but you learn how to talk the talk and walk the walk, and sometimes that means being drink like a man and curse like a man sometimes <laughs> if you're out. But, you know, I, I just felt very comfortable in it. And um, I got promoted a lot of times. I mean, in 20 years, I did a lot of jobs. And one of the things that I said in the panel yesterday was that I was always kind of looking around corners at what the next thing was that was coming in. Coming in. If nobody wanted to deal with it, I would raise my hand and say, I'll do that. And so I got to do things that nobody really cared about at the time when I said I wanted to do it, and all of a sudden they became important, like music video. Yeah. Like when I moved to California in 77, and my job at the time was booking our artists, all the Columbia label artists, on the TV shows, including Midnight Special, Rock Concert, American Bandstand, Soul Train, Solid Gold, Merv Griffin, Dinah Shore, Mike Douglas, Johnny Carson. Don Kirshner's Rock Don Concert. Don Kirshner's Rock yeah. Concert. I even got thanked by Don Kirshner once. Oh, really? I booked Loverboy, the band Loverboy, on mm -hmm. the show. And you know, at the beginning of those shows, we like to thank our friends, yeah. and I got thanked by Don. Wow, <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty cool. So I was doing the TV thing, and then the international division of uh, CBS Records needed to have some footage of um, a couple of the bands, Journey in particular, because it was easier to send footage to Europe to get on TV stations than it was to send the band over there to do a promo mm -hmm. tour. Mm -hmm. But there was no production community yet for music videos because there was no place to play them. And mm -hmm. this was before MTV. Mm -hmm. So I went out and found people to do that, and we shot Journey, and we actually shot Santana. And the next thing I know is along comes um, MTV pitching the record companies, we want your videos. Well, nobody had big libraries of music videos in those days, and MTV wasn't really on in, you know, this is before they went on, but they when they finally did go on, they were only on in sort of secondary and tertiary markets. They weren't on in New York and L.A., and you know, mm -hmm. if you're in the music business and you can't see it, or your kids mm -hmm. can't see it, it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. So trying to convince the heads that this was gonna be important was hard. And so nobody gave, you know, nobody cares. So they gave it to me. Little <laughs> girl on the West Coast, you can deal with this, you know? So I rode that wave and became the music video maven at Columbia Records and mm -hmm. built that department and then moved back to New York in 84 and became a VP, which was very early to have a woman VP who wasn't in publicity, because most of the jobs yeah. in those days, yeah. the VPs were VP of publicity. Um, and I became the vice president of a new division, which I helped create, which was to move from the short form, three and a half minute promotional music videos, which were what was called a cost center, because they were paid for pretty much by the labels, to a new, opportunity to try to monetize, I hate that word, but to make money on the rights that we had with our artist videos and to create bigger programs for television and then release on home video cassette. So we were doing concerts and documentaries for PBS, for HBO, for Showtime. I went to Russia with Billy Joel in 1987 wow. mm -hmm. and executive mm -hmm. produced the Live from Leningrad concerts that aired from mm -hmm. HBO and have recently re-aired on Showtime. And I worked with every artist on all the CBS labels for 10 years, creating a new opportunity for doing full-length programming and then putting them out on VHS and Laserdisc at the time. This is pre-DVDs. So uh, I got to work with you know almost every artist on the label and I did that for 10 years. And that was, at that point, I'd been there 20 years enough. So, mm -hmm. and I, I tell people that in all of the time I was at CBS, I never had a computer. In fact, it was, I say BC. I worked in the record <laughs> business before computers, BC, <laughs> in the BC era. 
At the end, they were starting to get, some executives had computers, but I really had no interest in it until I left and realized, oh my God, I better get a computer. And so I bought myself my first MacBook and I became comfortable with the technology and that's how I ended up in the digital music business. And because I had label experience and I now kind of understood the new online world and that started uh, the next stage of my career, which was really in the early days of music on the internet e-commerce, which was selling CDs and also music videos, but mostly selling CDs. Like Amazon at the time sold books and only books. They didn't sell toaster ovens and, you know, mm -hmm. it was Barnes & Noble and Amazon were the booksellers and CD Now and Music Boulevard were the e-commerce music sellers. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I was the VP of Aver Marketing, Advertising and Sales and we went through um, three years of the dot-com boom. We went public, we raised a lot of money, had an IPO. Um, we uh, launched the first digital download scheme called EMOD, which stood for Encoded Music for Online Delivery, E-M-O-D. That was really the first 99 cent download, but that was hard even just getting the record companies to give us content to be able to mm. sell to people. This is way before iTunes and stuff. Mm -hmm. This was 97. Um, and then our competitor, CD Now, bought in 2K, and uh, that was the parent company of Music Boulevard. And we all basically went our own ways. So the diaspora from that company are people all over the industry, from Apple to venture capitalists to people in, in all aspects of the business. And then I uh, uh, quickly segued into the early subscription services, the services that we have today, like the Spotify's and the Apple's and the Rhapsody's. Um, before that, there were a few companies that were early companies, and one was a joint venture between Sony Music and Universal Music called Press Play. Second mm -hmm. time we've yeah. had that this discussion. Really? Yeah. yeah. Yesterday yes. we were talking about um, the short Aileen. 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 Yeah. yeah. Aileen was, and I worked together at Press yeah. Play. Ah. Mm -hmm. right. We know each other from then. Now we see each other. She, now she's the actually woman. at a law firm. Yep. Yeah. And uh, women in digital media. Yep. Yep. Um, she's a character. I left Press Play <laughs> and decided actually to go to law school. Yeah. Yeah. It was partly because of the rights issues that services like Press Play were encountering because these were new uses of music and nobody had figured out yet what rights, what kind of copyright licenses those uses implicated. Mm. And the idea that you could download a file and have it sort of conditionally on your computer until you canceled your subscription or if you didn't pay your subscription, then it would basically disappear or blow up or right. be frozen, mm. whatever. Is is that a is that a sale? Is that a license? Yeah. Is it a purchase? You know what is it? Like so the tethered download. It's a tethered yeah. download. Yeah. That's right. We yeah. call them tethered or timed out. Now they call mm -hmm. them conditional downloads. But I was as the head of marketing, pit, twiddling my thumbs. Like, what do you mean we can't launch? I don't understand why we can't launch. We had all these big marketing plans, and so I decided that I needed to understand that copyright stuff, and so I went to law school, <laughs> and. Um, went to law school in New York at New York Law School and focused on copyright and what was then called cyber law. Mm. This is internet law. And um, after law school, I set up my own company and that's where Music Strat came from. I had no interest in going back and being a first year associate in a right. grunt in a grunt in a law, in a law firm, firm yeah. in my 50s and go right. and be competing with the new graduates from law school who were 22, right? It was right. not going not going to happen. And so I I don't really look at myself as a practicing lawyer. I look mm -hmm. at myself as a consultant who happens to have a law degree and specifically focusing on copyright. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what exactly would your day-to-day -day be uh, that you do now as as a consultant? Well, I um I, I try to get clients. <laughs> you know, that's one of the things I never really like. When you work at a company, you don't 
have to pitch you don't have to pitch yourself for work you get mm -hmm. what comes to you when yeah. you're in a company and usually it's like a fire drill every you know every day mm -hmm. there's a new crisis or whatever when you're out there on your own you're actually out there I go to conferences like this one and many other conferences where I'm trying to meet people and find interesting clients who are generally innovative young startups who are sometimes doing streaming music services or other kinds of online music related things and they need somebody to help them navigate the music industry ecosystem and to help them understand what rights they need if they're going to be using music directly and um, so I am very picky and selective uh, I don't work with a ton of people but I um, I work from home so that's nice I yeah. go from my bedroom to my living room to my <laughs> computer you know it's like I don't have too far to go um, and it's great because I set my own hours and I work as hard from home as I did in an office but I it's more efficient in many ways because I'm right there and my clients are not in necessarily in New York they're all over the place they could be international they could be from Canada they could be from any place and um, each one of them is different and has their own unique uh, goals it's challenging these days because fundraising and trying to be able to uh, build a new business takes resources so they yeah. beg their families their friends and their families for startup money and then they have to go out there and start pitching to real venture capitalists and investors and things so did you become an LLC how did you decide what kind of company you wanted to be well that's a good question because New York has a very um, antiquated and there are, it's a political uh, exercise an LLC in order to actually defend your position as an LLC you have what's called a publishing requirement and it costs you know $2,2500 and you have to publish for six weeks in a row in two publications that they tell you what they are it's I decided not to do the LLC because actually as a sole proprietorship there is really no difference other than a liability issue because yeah. you're a limited liability company and I haven't really gotten into any situations where I've had a, sort of any legal risk. Um, so as a sole proprietorship, an LLC, you get paid as a 1099 consultant. It's the same thing as being a sole practitioner without having an LLC. The only advantage is the protections that you get for having the limited liability and I at the time decided I don't know how long I'm going to do this, I wasn't right. going to pay to do that. Mm -hmm. so. mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. incorporation is, for a sole practitioner doesn't make any sense. We've had, uh, well out of the number of people we have interviewed in the last two days, there's so many people, um, I think the majority of them are in some sort of rights clearance. Yeah digital rights clearance business. I mean, one little company been a year, another company's been about a year and a half and so on, and they're all trying to get through the whole system of paying, of getting paid. Right. If you're a, um, a well, holder first of, all, of any this, copyright. This, this complexity and the problems, the data problems, there's been a lot of stuff going on here about metadata. Yeah, it's a very yeah. hot topic in the business. There are some holes in the system, and yes. these companies that um, are the leading companies that are the performing rights organizations or the mechanical mm -hmm. rights administration mm -hmm. organizations were created at a time when they were collecting money from traditional media, yeah, from radio, from television, saying, yeah. and the internet, the volume of information that comes from 
um, you know, the reports that are generated by these services, billions of lines of code every month. Mm -hmm. And systems have to be very, very robust to be able to handle that and the management, it's all about data management and all mm -hmm. the pe most of the people at these companies are on the technology side. Um, so, and there's a lot going on with, with law, with copyright reform right, discussions right, yeah. that can change at the drop of a hat how rights are, you know, how much and what rights are paid for what. And so there are a lot of new entries into the yep. business. Yep. And, um, but it's a hard for them to compete with the Harry Foxes and the ASCAPs and BMI. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's challenging. Yeah. You have to have a lot of money and a lot of processing power. Yeah, yeah. But it's the, they're, and I've noticed that a lot of them are on the, they're on the side of the artist or on the side of the songwriter right. rather than the publisher or the, the bigger entities because they find obviously that's a right. very much there's a, um, you know, there's a, a niche there right. that the artist has no idea. All they know is, like we've said in other times, in, in other countries you got one central place where you can get paid. That's right. Here it looks like it's never going to happen. The performance rights, mechanicals, and the, all the digital and sync and so on, they're all just about talk to each other. These, there's a business model in being able to collect monies that artists aren't getting made and taking a piece of that. Yeah. And, um, you yeah. know, at the end of the day, it comes out of the artist's pocket, but it's money the artist might not have seen in the first place right. if those companies didn't exist. Right. Right, exactly. Yeah. And it's and it's hard work because they, it's they're like... It's like digging in a coal mine or something, you know? Yeah, it's, yeah and we noticed that these guys are pretty smart. They come in and, oh, you yeah. know, they can explain exactly <laughs> and how they're getting this data and reading the data and collecting and so on. It's a very interesting, and I, my hat goes off again to Jim Donio because he reinvented a merchandising organization, you know, NARM, and he put the right people on boards, and he, all of these sessions are like, boy, if you pick this thing up, Ten years ago, you would have, what? This isn't music business anymore. That what? I don't know what they're talking about. But it just goes on and on and on. These little new, you know. And he's smart enough to just get all these new guys on board. Well, this is yeah. all about innovation. It's seeing an opportunity in a marketplace, yeah. a need that maybe didn't exist before that you can identify early on enough to get in there early. Yeah. And. Um, you know, first mover advantage is one thing, but you also have to have the resources and the knowledge to be able to build a company around new opportunities. And I see this in Nashville now. I have people that I know that have moved down here and who are in this innovation space. Unfortunately, I missed the demo session yesterday because it was at the same time as my panel, the Project Music demo. Mm -hmm. But a friend of mine who was a client of mine when he first launched his app, Moodsnap, he was in Boston. I helped him get all the licenses and we uh, worked together for yeah, a couple of years. And then unfortunately he had to shut it down because he couldn't afford to keep it going. And now he's brought it back and he demoed it. It was apparently the last and best of the demos yesterday. I didn't get to go, but um, you know, it takes a certain kind of personality to be able to, you know, s step up and say, um, I have an idea and I have passion for this idea and I'm going to put everything I have into this and hopefully it'll work. And, you know, a very small percentage of them do, but still, these are people, you know, we call it failing upwards. Because in the innovation business, you, you have to start somewhere, and you learn from your mistakes, and, you know, every time one company fails, another company starts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't think we've failed at all with this interview, and we have to stop. 
because we've run out of time. You hardly ask me any questions. I, I, I talk too much. <laughs> <laughs> but it we wasn't like that, that, actually. We like was, that. Yeah, this was actually really interesting. And this is going to be great for us all to listen to again. If you have yeah. to edit it, I hope yeah. you can actually do that without <laughs> shopping me up. Just, just all your F-bombs. Um, <laughs> you know, besides your sailor mouth, it was really great. So <laughs> we appreciate that. So we want to give thanks to Deborah Newman for being here. Let's give yes. thanks to Deborah Newman. Thank for you. That was really great. It was some really great stuff you mm -hmm. talked about. So thank you oh, very good. much for that. And then we want to thank Emily Case okay, and Alyssa too. Warner for being here. Thank yeah. you very much, both of you, yeah. for making this happen. We appreciate it very much. We want to thank Dr. Esteban Marconi for well, talking and participating. thank you very much. And of course, my co-host. Who is I, yeah. uh, <laughs> Professor David Kirk Philp. And if you're my friend, you may call me Professor David Kirk Philp. Mm -hmm. And we want to say at the end of every one, every time I want to say at the end of every one of these, I, I stumble, I fall. But I pick myself up again. Um, and I say, uh, instead of saying hello, I we want to say, so. yeah, and no, go ahead. you have a great voice. Uh, instead of hello, we want to say adios! Oh.